Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for, what is it, Wednesday, May 16th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we are going to speak to the American Legion, as we do every Wednesday. And we're going to talk to them about something that I think a lot of people are familiar with the Legion doing, as well as you know other organizations that do a similar thing, raising funds by selling poppies. We're going to talk to them about that program where it came from, what it means, uh, and and exactly how it works. All of that coming up in our discussion with the Legion later on in today's show. And then our own JQ sat down with a subject matter expert to talk about Senator John McCain. Of course, the Navy veteran and former Vietnam prisoner of war is battling a, a form of brain cancer right now. And of course, there's been a lot of discussion about him with some people saying some pretty disrespectful things about the senator. Well, Jake talked to, again, a subject matter expert on McCain to find out a little bit more about what the man is all about, what his career was all about, both before and after he entered the political landscape. All of that still to come on this Wednesday edition of the show, and it all starts off by me welcoming in our own Jake Hughes to the studio. Jake, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? I sat in traffic for an interminable amount of time. I actually thought I was going to get here early today. I was flying down the highway, and I'm like, well, my GPS must be wrong because it says I'm going to get there later than I normally do, but I think I'm going to get there earlier. Yeah, and then I got to the uh, the outskirts of the city, and boy, was there just no place to go. I even went, you know, the back roads, get off the road, get off the highway, and go down the uh, the little side roads, and that, that cut... I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes off. I don't know why the GPS wasn't telling me to do that, but apparently some uh, some massive accident uh, this morning that blocked off a bridge and a tunnel, and I was one of the lucky ones. Had I been coming, I was coming from the, uh, what side do I come from? The east, I guess. Had I been coming from the west, they said that the people coming that way hadn't moved in like 40 minutes. I was listening oh, to wow. the, uh, the traffic reports on the radio, and yeah, it wasn't looking good. But I made it here uh, eventually, and that's really what what you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> Make it to your destination. Better to be uh, late than to not arrive at all. And I saw some people doing those dumb things that you see when there's heavy traffic where they try to zip out and go down the shoulder and all these very dangerous things that put their lives in danger, which, okay, you want to put your life in danger, you go right ahead. I don't really care about that. But when you start putting other people's lives in danger with your bad driving, that's when I get very... Uh, very irritated and angry about what people are doing. Uh, The other thing that gets me irritated and angry out on the roads is when the light turns green and people aren't moving because I know what they're doing. They're looking at their phone. They're reading something or they're watching a video. No, nope, 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 nope. When you get to a traffic light, the only thing you should be doing is looking at that traffic light so that as soon as it turns green, you're hitting the gas and you're moving. Especially when traffic is slow. You would think that oh, after yeah. not moving for so long, you would be itching to move. Well, the, the one person that was doing it at every single light and also stopping for extra long times at stop signs because it was a mixture, 
uh, I don't think was on the highway. So I don't think what had dealt with the frustration that everyone else that had gotten off of the highway did. And they were one of those people that was, uh, they were driving a hybrid that had a whole bunch of stickers on it that were either political or pointing out how proud they were that they were driving a hybrid. I think if you, if you made a Venn diagram of people who drive like, you know, the hybrid or electric vehicles and people who are uh, willing to put self-congratulatory stickers on their car, it would just be one circle. Yeah. Those are the people who are doing that. Like I'm saving the world driving this car. How about you? Well, okay. I guess I'm not. I'm destroying the world. That makes us enemies. There you go. I don't know what to say, but if you're if you're driving one of those uh, cars, I, I understand that they don't have the same uh, horsepower as other cars. However, uh, there's no reason for you to stay at a red light longer than anybody else. I don't know. I never considered when we got a new car. My wife was like, "What do you think about getting the hybrid?" And I said, "No." I just <laughs> had no interest in it. They're ugly. Uh, the one that we were looking at, I was like, "It's ugly." It costs a lot more, and the amount that we're going to save on gas, it would take years for it to to you know make up for the fact that it's so much more expensive. But eh, is what it is. We got here. Everybody's here. It's a gray, dreary day, and uh, a little bit of a dreary day in the news for the military as we look around what's been happening. We've got a psychologist at Travis Air Force Base. Oh, I heard about this. Accused of rape. Clinical psychologist who treated veterans with post-traumatic stress been charged with raping female service members who were in therapy as victims of sexual assaults. His name is Heath Summer, and he was ordered Monday to stand trial on three felony sexual assault charges after authorities said he targeted female service members in 2014 and 15 working at Travis Air Force Base's David Grant Medical Center. Uh, that's northeast of San Francisco. He was arrested uh, you know, about a month or so ago. I mean, earlier this month, so I guess a half a month ago, but... Uh, you know, it, it seems that this guy um, is the lowest of the low. Yep. And this is... You are <sighs> worse than scum. If you're going to take advantage of people who are at risk, I he, mean, to me, it's the same. That's that's the same deal as messing with the elderly or messing with children. You're messing with someone who isn't in the right mind to consent. Well, it's, it's, even worse, it's even worse than just that, Jake. These were women who were seeking treatment for sexual assault. So people coming to you for help with an issue, and what you do is repeat that issue with yep. them. That's... um. I mean, let's hope he spends the rest of his life in prison. That's uh, that's all that I think you can hope. Um, he remains in jail. Bail is set at $750,000. I don't know anybody uh, that I'm aware of. I mean, if, if and I never would, but if I were to do something like that, I don't think my friends or family would be bailing nope, me out. Nope, I'd be excommunicated. Yeah, I mean, and, and you should be if you do something yeah. like that. This is... Uh, this is a horrifying thing, and I don't know. You know, I was looking through the AP story on it and everything else, um, but this guy, we know that he treated around 100 people before being suspended in 2016. Uh, they hired him through a contracting company in 2014, so 100 people over two years. Uh, one woman told an investigator that Summers did something called exposure therapy, where he exposed himself and had her give him oral sex in the office. In another session, groped her, and I mean, this is this is reported by the newspaper out there. Was at a uh, uh, an, an open hearing. This is incredibly, incredibly infuriating. Uh, one also telling him that the or telling the press that um, and investigators that Summer, this uh, disgraced, disgraced therapist, moved the sessions to his home. 
I, you know, it's one of those things, and, and again, not victim blaming, but that's one of those things. Like, why did no one else think, like, no, I'm not going to this guy's home? I mean, yeah. the patient is the person I'm going to blame the least, but uh, did his, uh, did the office not know that he was seeing patients at his home? And I'm going to guess they didn't. I'm going to guess that he just set it up and made it look like it was official and it was okay, but it really wasn't. Uh, you know, and, and the patient sometimes, patients oftentimes, uh, in the medical community, in the medical world or whatever, we don't do our due diligence. If something seems off, you know, it's 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 really on you to check on it. And sometimes some things will seem off because it's you're not a doctor and you don't know why they would be doing this, but there is a valid reason. This guy, of course, didn't have any valid reasons. So, again, not blaming the victim, but when it, just in the future for anybody, if if you have something that doesn't seem right in a, in a therapy appointment. No therapist should have you seeing them in their home unless it's a, a private service that, uh, that's, that their home is their office, and that does happen. Uh, also, um, there are no therapies that involve uh, oral sex or things like that yeah. uh, in the world. So you know, this is, uh, it, it, was, it was reported. He was caught, and, the, and these things are finally coming out. He saw over 100 patients, and we don't know how many of them had uh, had these kinds of issues with him, but there's at least two right there. The one who said he moved it to his home, the other one saying that he did exposure therapy, which involved exposing himself and sexual interaction between the two of them. So you're also dealing with people who've been traumatized. So, you know, are they able to recognize yeah. when something is going wrong? That, I don't know. That's don't the know. Po- That's the point I made is that these, these women were so vulnerable and so, and I'm not meaning this derogatory in any way, shape or form, but they're not in their right minds because of the trauma they've suffered. Mm. And so they're more, uh, what's the word? Maybe compliant or, uh, complacent. Maybe that when someone, an official doctor says this will help you, they're in that position where I will do anything to get over this to help me fix this issue. Yeah. So that's why I said it's like if you have do the same thing with a child, is that they're not in the right mind to consent to what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and it, you just you look at it and it's difficult because you want to talk about things. And again, these individuals have gone through horrifying things. Uh, you know, it looks like before they saw him and then after they saw him and during while they saw him. Just if you are out there and you are seeking help from any sort of therapist and there's any sort of sexual interaction trying to be passed off as treatment, no. No, 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 no. If that's a man, then you go ahead and give him a kick square, square where it hurts the most and you walk out of there because that is not, I guarantee you, that is not a, a feasible, legitimate form of therapy. This guy was getting away with it, though, and trying to explain it away. And, you know, there are people... That are good at that kind of stuff. There are people that are good at getting people to believe the nonsense that they're selling. You know, the snake oil that they're selling or whatever. You can look at a great number of things out there. And and while we can look at this and say like, well, you know, why didn't they say something when the guy was saying like, oh, yeah, I'm going to show you my genitals and that's going to help you get better. Well, why did you do A, B, and C? You know, why did you buy uh, those one of those magnet brace things? Like, oh yeah, I put this on my uh, my arm and it makes it feel better because of the iron in my blood. No, there's not enough iron in your blood for yeah. magnets <laughs> to have an effect on it. So, you know, there there are people are are it's 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 upsetting and it's unfortunate when people take advantage of it. But people are oftentimes more trusting than we should be, and sometimes less trusting than we should be. Especially uh, when it's someone like a doctor. Like if my doctor told me that some 
odd therapy would help. I can't. I don't know how far it would have to go before I said no because I trust her. Mm. Well, I think any sort of sex would probably. Well, yeah, be, that would be a line that you wouldn't cross. But uh, again, you're 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 these people specifically. It looks like we're seeking treatment for sexual assault, which is a, a whole different you know ball of wax essentially, where you've got different issues at play. And this guy was uh, he was a predator, and uh, you know predators. Uh, hopefully get caught in this case he was so it looks like uh he'll if found guilty be doing a, a hopefully a long time in prison uh this is someone who though uh you know you see these stories and you're like eh, can we just get rid of this person can we just put him on a giant catapult and launch him out into the center of the ocean or onto a rocket and fire him up into space because what good is he going to do from this point on this is someone who had a medical degree. This is someone, well, I can't say that. I don't know if he was, there are therapists who are doctors of medicine and there are therapists who are not. You know, there's the, that, that whole difference there. But this is someone who went through a lengthy education process to get certified to do this and had the position to do great things and instead chose to do the worst things that he possibly could. Eh, just get rid of him. Just get rid of him. Launch him into space, center of the ocean. That's how I look at it. You're irredeemable at that point. And there are people who disagree with that. You know, I'm from a state where they got rid of like the death penalty shortly after a family of four were uh, all killed except for the father. He was the only one who survived. His uh, two daughters and wife were uh, raped and murdered. And then the house was set on fire by these two scumbags during a home invasion uh, while they were still alive. So they burned alive inside of the house. The father was able to escape as the fire was going on. Uh, couldn't get to his wife and daughters. Uh, those guys, I think, still face the death penalty up there in Connecticut. One of them actually may have uh, killed himself in prison. I don't know. But uh, the state after that even, I mean, there are things. Do you think there are things that are irredeemable where people should have, uh, you know, your life is forfeit? Well, on the one hand, yes. But on the majority, I don't believe in the death penalty. I, I think it's for religious reasons. Okay. I think that there are things uh, if you murder a child. If you rape a child, if you do something like this guy did, I'd be fine if they if he went through a trial. I'm not talking summary executions where you just walk up and execute someone. Um, that's not how things work in this country. That's how things work in places like uh, when the Taliban was running Afghanistan and places like that. But, you know, if they go through the judicial process and then the judicial process works it out and decides that uh, what they've done is worthy of that, uh, you know, I guess it comes down to the majority decision. That's what this country's all about, what the most people feel about situations but you know there's certain things that I, I just don't care and i know you know life is sacred and all that stuff nah, there are monsters out there and monsters need to be gotten rid of locking them up yeah i guess but why do we want to pay more money to keep them alive for longer and have that slim opportunity that a monster might someday get out of prison and and be able to do more monstrous things you you can look at that and say like yeah I don't think that'll happen. Well, it has happened before. Yeah. You know, people have been released. We had a, there was a murderer. What was it? Just last year, it was released by mistake. Clerical error. Thank goodness they found him the next day. But this is a guy who had killed several people. They thought he was someone else and let him out. There have been people who escaped from prison and all sorts of other things. I don't know. Went down a, we, we've gone down a path a little bit away yeah, from Yeah, kind of went down a rabbit there, hole. But I, yeah, I for me, yeah, that guy. You get to those things. You get to sex crimes. If you're found guilty of sex crimes or crimes against the elderly children, the truly defenseless, the handicapped, uh, that is where uh, I just have no sympathy, and that's okay. You know, uh, We can disagree on that, of course. 
Veterans are not a monolith. There are those out there who would say, like, yeah, let's just off this guy today. There are those out there who would say, nope, we should never take a life. Of course, you know, with the... <laughs> There's an interesting uh, dichotomy there with people who are military veterans who also believe like, well, you shouldn't take a life. Well, that's part of what the military does. I don't know. It's an interesting discussion that is certainly not going to be solved by the two of us. Some people that solve things, Marine Corps snipers, Jake. Yeah. Some of the best shots in the world. They handle problems. Do you remember the movie, oh man, what was it called? A Clear and Present Danger, I think. Was that the one? With Harrison Ford? Harrison Ford down in South America with the Marines. I think so. There was Patriot Games, was with the IRA. That Yes, so the first one was Hunt for Red October with Alec Baldwin playing Jack Ryan. Patriot Games with Harrison Ford playing Jack Ryan. And then the third one, A Clear and Present Danger, where Harrison Ford playing Jack Ryan goes down to fight against the drug cartels in Colombia and there's a character in that movie, Ding Chavez, who's a Marine sniper. And there's a great scene where there are the sniper instructors, essentially, up on a flatbed truck. And there's a target right next to him. And there's a field out in front of him with bushes and stuff. They have binoculars. And he's out there, this uh, sniper, Chavez, for the Marines, shooting at the uh, target. And they're trying to find him. You know, his ghillie suit and everything. Right. Find where he was. And there's a great one where, like... Oh, he's right over there. He's right over there. They send the spotter over to go get him. Guy runs over and goes, uh, no, sir. He ate lunch here and pulls up like a McDonald's wrapper, things like that. So, I mean, Marine Corps snipers, legendary for their abilities. Gunnery Sergeant Hathcock, perhaps the greatest sniper in the history of the American military, in the Vietnam era specifically, uh, the gunny there, Gunny Hathcock. There are no shortage of people who have graduated from the Marine Corps Scout Sniper course and gone on to do amazing things and become legends within the Marine Corps, legends within the military in general. Well, the Marine Corps Scout Sniper's course has a new high shooter and high stalker for their most recent class. And it's oh, really? Pretty, I've heard of this story. Do interesting, tell, do, do tell me about this new record holder. Well, Sergeant Scanlon was named high shooter. Sergeant Fox was named high stalker. Clinton Scanlon and Bryce Fox. United States Army (laughs) went through that. Uh, They graduated April 13th at Camp Geiger on Marine Corps Air Station, New River in North Carolina. That's where they do that thing. And, oh, boy. So they put two two soldiers into the class. These guys coming from uh, 2nd Battalion, 505th Infantry Regiment. Uh, They are, or Scanlon at least, is from the uh, 2nd Battalion, 505th. And I don't know if it says where Fox is from. I don't know. But anyway, um, the Marines are, are very proud of their scout sniper course. I mean, it's one of the most difficult courses that they have. And, you know, the, of course, every Marine is a rifleman and they all have to keep up their qualifications. When I was stationed in Iceland with the Marines, there are no outdoor firing ranges on the entire island. So they would all leave the whole Marine Corps Security Force Company. <laughs> I think they'd leave a few behind. But the entire security force company would have to leave the island like twice a year to go and one, do their firearms qualifications. And then they'd also do some exercises while they were out there, you know, live fire exercises and things like that, because Iceland didn't have outdoor firing ranges. And this group of a couple hundred Marines, their job was if the Russians attacked Keflavik, which was uh, a big, you know, intermediary point, uh, air station, it's a good listening point for submarines. Their job was to hold off an assault until more Marines showed up. So basically, 
they were the front line of defense for Iceland. And for those who think like, well, what are the chances that that would happen? The day I checked into Iceland, or the weekend, I should say, I think it may have actually been the the next day, a uh, Russian bear bomber flew into Icelandic airspace and they had to scramble the F-16s from Keflavik to go and uh, keep an eye on it and then escort it away. Um, so it, it is something that was, uh, even at that point, 1990, we're talking 99 when I got there, I guess, it was, uh, you know, still the Cold War was over, but there was still some Russian shenanigans going on as there are today. They're constantly flying into our airspace, believe it or not, up in the Alaska area uh, where we are so close to them. So close that you can actually see uh, Russia from your uh, porch in some places yeah, in yeah, Alaska. Yeah. You actually can. I mean, it's it's true. <laughs> Maybe not where Sarah Palin lived. Uh, of course, Sarah Palin never actually said that. It was Tina Fey who said it on Saturday Night Live, and now everyone believes that Sarah Palin actually did say it, which is kind of an interesting little uh, experiment right there in, in thought process and how people believe things to be true and know it to be true, eh, when in actuality, it's not. We are taking a look around at things hanging on, uh, hanging on, taking place in the military world. The Taliban hanging on over in Afghanistan. And it's May now, which is typically the beginning of when the Taliban starts doing stuff. For those who have never been to Afghanistan, it is a mountainous country. It is, in the wintertime, a cold country. This is not Iraq. This is not Kuwait. This is not Syria. It is high desert for the most part. So up in the mountains, it snows, it's very cold. So what happens is late fall, early winter, uh, you know, the Taliban essentially uh, turn back into regular citizens. <laughs> they bury their weapons. Uh, the AK-47, of course, is notoriously wonderful when it comes to its ability to <laughs> you can put do anything with it and it'll still fire when you come back to it. So they just bury them underground someplace, go back to living in their villages, doing what they do. Then once it warms up and starts thawing out in May, they go back out, they dig them up, and then they uh, they get back to uh, fighting against the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Police, as well as, of course, our military. There's also, uh, there was a time, and I don't know if they're still doing this, where if you were a Taliban, you were allowed to come in, turn in your weapons, and... They would essentially feed and clothe and train you to become an Afghan national policeman or Afghan uh, local policeman or Afghan national army. And coincidentally, I'm sure it was always the late fall, early winter when those guys would come to turn in their weapons. When it starts getting hard to live out in the mountains, you know, in a tent and, and living out in the open, they would come in, they would turn in their stuff and... Of course, I'd talk to all the people from, you know, 10th Mountain that were up there and they'd be like, yeah, these guys and the Germans as well be like, yeah, these guys are all Taliban. You know, we, we I remember going to one specific outpost, uh, which was a place that was very important to the Germans. They had lost a guy there who'd made a kind of a heroic last stand. Uh, Polly Bridge, it was called. So went to this little outpost. And there were a bunch of guys standing around, and they were like, yeah, those guys are all former Taliban. And once it warms up, they'll be Taliban again. <laughs> so they'd come in. They'd get free. They'd get food. They'd get housing. They'd even get training. And then they'd go right back to being in the Taliban afterwards. Yep. And it's, it's you know, when we think about those countries, and, and you experience what it's like over in uh, in Iraq, where the infrastructure is limited 
to say the least. So it's hard to verify who's who. And like you could say, well, okay, they can only do that once. So you've got this guy, you know, Johnny Taliban showed up at a camp and turned in his weapon and they were like, okay, we'll train you. What's your name? Here's my name. Where's your birth certificate? I don't have a birth certificate. Okay. A lot of people out here don't in these remote villages. You could say, well, they'll recognize him the next time. Okay, well, what if he goes to another location to turn yeah. his stuff in? I mean, it's essentially, they're essentially playing musical chairs over there, but the Taliban fighting season has started, and they launched an assault on Farah City in Afghanistan. Farah is a pretty large city. It's out in the kind of yeah, the western area, borders Helmand province, uh, the province that Farah is in, also shares a border with Iran. Um, there were other raids in Badakhshan, Baglan, Faryab, and Zabul provinces. Uh, those are places, uh, for the most part, up in the north and the kind of the, the western areas. Um, I'm very familiar with Baglan and Badakhshan and Faryab provinces. There are, uh, you know, things going on over there. The Air Force called in an airplane that has faced execution several times but keeps showing its worth on the battlefield. The A-10 Warthogs with the GAU-8 Avenger Gatling gun came in, provided air support, and uh, they are still over there at Farah City in Afghanistan working to attempt the city's fall and doing what really only the A-10 can do. So those who want the A-10 to go away, here's what I'm saying to you. Just look at what's going on over in Farah City right now. And pay attention to what's going on here on the Morning Briefing. Coming up, we are going to speak to the American Legion about their poppy sales season. And we are also going to speak in just a moment with a subject matter expert on John McCain. Jake sat down with them to get some more info on the Navy veteran and the United States Senator. Morning Briefing, ConnectingVets.com. Stick around. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. And we'll start in three, two, one. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing. I'm Super Producer JQ, sitting in the driver's seat for this interview. And we have been talking a lot lately about politics. And politics gets important, it gets unimportant, and all these things. But there's one man that has been very well known, not just in the political community, but in the veteran community as well. I'm talking, of course, about Senator John S. McCain. Now, to talk about Mr. McCain and some of his... Uh, his political importance. I'm joined by a very special guest, uh, Professor Laura Brown. She is the director and assistant professor of the Graduate School for Political Management at George Washington University. Professor Brown, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. We greatly appreciate it. Now, let's talk, tell, first, before we get into John McCain, tell me a little bit about you. Give me a little of your background. Well, so I serve as the director of the Graduate School of Political Management at the George Washington University. And for those who don't know our school, um, I often say that we do the MBAs for politics, meaning that we are the first and foremost school of applied politics, advocacy, and communications. And we really train those students at the graduate level who are interested in working behind the scenes in Washington. Most of them are working as communications directors and chiefs of staff, digital directors, fundraisers, and they do all sorts of sort of um, staffing work 
um, here in D.C., and it's a very exciting school to be a part of. Um, I am an associate professor of political science. I also um, served in the Clinton administration back in the late 90s. Um, So I've been sort of both an activist in politics at one point, a presidential appointee at another, and now I really serve as an academic and an analyst um, about our political system. That's that's a lot of cool information. Now, before I get started, there's something I should have asked before. Do you prefer Professor Brown or Dr. Brown? Oh, it doesn't matter. (laughs) How about Laura? (laughs) Laura, that's even better. I I usually say only my students need to call me doctor. All right. Well, I'm I'm somewhat of a student today. I'm like an an unofficial student for you because we're learning a lot of really cool stuff. So, uh, again, I want to ask one more question about you. How did you get involved in the political process? Like, what attracted you to this sort of lifestyle? You know, I think originally as a young person in college, I just found politics so fascinating because at root, It's really about what is the nature of human beings? What do they do? How do they behave? How do they think and work collectively? And then it's really about, um, you know, how do we create a society that best fits our, our kind of nature? And how do we work together to create aims and policies that will work uh, for as many people as possible? So I'm sort of fascinated in the big philosophy side of this equation, which is part of the reason why um, the partisan change and maneuvering is a big part of what's interesting to me in our system. Um, And I'm also really interested in how voters respond to scandal, which is why that was my dissertation. Well, if you you want a scandal, the Clinton administration would be the way to go. (laughs) I I joke, I joke. It hasn't stopped since the beginning. (laughs) I mean, the one thing about scandal is it is a perennial topic uh, of politics. Right. And so one of those things that we wish we didn't have to talk about, but at the same time, as humans, we're kind of gossipy creatures. We love to talk about, oh, the scandal and things like that. Well, and and let's face it, if you have any large organization – Um, There are going to be individuals who don't have the highest character and who pursue kind of, you know, things that are not the things you hope people do. And so in every single organization, you have that. I think it's true within every group. Many people see it even within their own family. There's one family member who sort of always takes the shadier road and, um, And so I think it's something that's really fascinating to me in terms of these choices about good and bad public service and public interest versus um, kind of self-interest and, um, you know, personal enrichment or short-term immediate gain. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a complex thing. So let's get on topic here. We're talking about Senator John McCain. Now, uh... What can you, let's start off, what can you tell me about, uh, what stands out to you about his career? Like, what is the the thing that really attracts your attention to him? Well, Senator McCain is a fascinating individual because I would argue that for much of the last two decades, really since 1998, when he first sort of launched his first presidential exploratory committee, 
he has been a politician who has garnered national attention and his positions have oftentimes made it so that other other politicians, other presidential aspirants, other people sort of looking for the spotlight have had to either pivot or react or respond to him. In other words, he has been this incredibly impactful voice, despite the fact that he lost the presidency twice. And um, there have been many times in which, you know, the Republicans haven't even been in the majority in the Senate. So he's been able to do this um, sort of against what uh, a backdrop of what people might see on the surface as someone who has lost and been a loser in a variety of instances. Okay. Now, he likes to self-style himself as the maverick. And uh, looking back, do you think it, because when I think about that, that to me means he doesn't toe the party line in some way, shape, or form. Do you think that's an apt description of him going, looking back at his record? Well, I think his record will show that he has been a very traditional conservative um, in many respects. He has voted with his party time and again. I haven't looked up his latest, um, you know, sort of party rating, but I do know that he has really been down the line consistently conservative, as quite frankly, his constituents in Arizona would expect. Um, But there have been times where he's taken very high profile stances in opposition of his party. Um, We can recall just um, this past year with the health care repeal vote, you know, it was his no vote that essentially sunk that bill, even though there were many other um, Republicans in the Senate who were not so wild about the repeal. So that was a a massive um, undertaking on his part, a very high profile um, moment. Obviously, we can look back on the torture debate in 2005 during um, the Bush presidency. He again took a very high-profile view. But you can also go back to his stance around um, the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act in 2002, in which he was the leading proponent of changing the way um, donations were accepted and how the parties um, raised money. And you could argue for better or for worse that his bill in 2002 really changed the way our current structure is with regard to politicians raising and funding uh, their campaigns. Yes. Now, <clears throat> one thing uh, I've mentioned, or this, and this is an opinion of mine, uneducated as I am, well, about politics anyway, uh, <laughs> um, I've said that when it came to his presidential runs, I think he was the best candidate. He was the right candidate in 2000, but I don't think he was the right candidate in 2008. And uh, so what impact did his presidential campaigns have on the political landscape, if any? Well, I mean, look, this is where I think one of the things that happens is what we call hindsight bias, meaning that people tend to look back and then they tend to think because of the outcome, things were somewhat inevitable um, during 
an actual event where there wasn't an unknown outcome. I think we can see that right now. There are many Republicans who look back just on 2016 and think, oh, of course Trump was winning. Well, that's not really true. There was a great deal of uncertainty. And yes, there were clues in the environment that suggested that Trump would have won. But there are also many other clues that suggested that Hillary Clinton would have won. And this is where the outcome ends up sort of biasing your perspective on how things actually happened in real time. If you look back on the 2000 campaign where McCain was engaged, that was really always going to be a futile effort. George W. Bush had essentially locked up the Republican Party nomination um, almost immediately after he won re-election to the governor's seat in Texas. And so one of the things that is true is that McCain, when he was running in 2000, really was running in some ways more as a protest candidate. And even though he won New Hampshire and that kind of um, changed the dynamic with George W. Bush because it made um, then candidate and Governor Bush realize that he had to do a lot more to secure South Carolina. Um, it was it, there was this reality that McCain was highly unlikely to win. So, if anything, what he really did was make George W. Bush a better candidate because he forced George W. Bush to essentially not take things for granted and retool his campaign and think more seriously. And that surely ended up helping George W. Bush in uh, the 2000 general election against Al Gore. Um, When you look to 2008, basically John McCain had become uh, the George W. Bush candidate by 2008. And by that, I mean, he had locked up most of the party by the time he started running. Everyone assumed he was in fact going to win. And then his campaign essentially fell apart um, because there was a certain amount of complacency and overspending um, on his campaign. They had to completely retool and he had to come back. Um, And I do think, you know, that his nomination at that point in time um, was, I would argue, he was a very strong candidate by that point in time, but it's highly unlikely for parties to win a third term to the presidency. So in that sense, it was the wrong time for him. So he was facing somewhat of an uphill battle. Now, do you think that was just because of that? Let's see how I'm trying to word this. You think that was just because he wasn't as good a candidate as Barack Obama? Or do you see that as more of a sort of a moratorium on the dissatisfaction of the country with the Bush years? Definitely the latter. And I think it's also true that when you when you look at uh, sort of the financial crisis that we were in, that Senator McCain did not respond in a way that actually elevated his candidacy. You know, he suspended his campaign. He threatened to pull out of the debate. And then when he went to Washington to purportedly help bring a solution to the freefall in the economy, um, he really didn't have any economic proposals to offer except to say that we needed to get rid of earmarks um, and sort of the pork in the budget, which anyone who knows the budget knows that that's 
typically only about 1% of any budget uh, where they existed. So his offer of change was really um, a very, very small one and didn't look like it was going to be um, reactive or appropriate to the environment. But I agree more generally that he was in a position from a structural standpoint that really no Republican could win. George W. Bush's approval rating was below 40 percent. The economy was essentially in freefall. Many voters did feel as though we had been both in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan for too long and the economy was not strong. Um, I don't think there's a Republican that could have won that race. Um, And in some ways, yes, the tables um, were turned if you look at 2016, right? In 2016, even though the economy was getting better and people were generally satisfied with Barack Obama's presidency, it would have been very hard for any Democrat to win in 2016. And so, you know, these um, these tables turn for the party's fortunes. And John McCain was definitely, in some ways, like Hillary Clinton, in that if you say, you know, John McCain's best chance at winning the presidency would have been 2000, yes. And his worst chance was in 2008. Her best chance was probably in 2008. And her worst chance was 2016. It's interesting how that works. Uh, so let's go on to his voting record. One thing that stood out for me, and one of the more landmark votes, we talked a little bit about how he was the deciding vote on the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. He was sort of gave the very dramatic Roman thumbs down. Uh, but another important vote that he was a part of or that or debate that he was a part of was the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell for the military. Now, do you know how has his policy on that? I know he was against it, the repeal, but had that policy evolved or was that sort of always his position? I'll be honest. I really don't know enough about his position and that um, situation um, to really know where McCain was coming from. It is true though, that, you know, John McCain did follow in so many ways, um, kind of a Goldwater Republican mindset. And so with that um, did come a more libertarian point of view on some of those issues. Okay. You mentioned uh, Goldwater. If, I, now, if I'm reading Wikipedia right, he actually took over for Barry Goldwater when he uh, first won the Senate in 1987. Uh, so how do you think, can you look back and tell me how you think they compare because I know Barry Goldwater is seen as the conservative bulwark, but something I learned yesterday doing research for this actually is that Goldwater was actually one of the ones who was in favor of repealing the ban on homosexuals in the military. I never knew that. Yeah, he was uh, Goldwater was also um, essentially. I mean, he wasn't pro-choice, but he wasn't essentially anti abortion. Um, one of the the things that is true about Barry Goldwater and his history was that he was against the Civil Rights Act, um, not necessarily because of, you know, any sort of what we would today consider to be racist positions 
um, you know, akin to something like George Wallace. He was actually against the Civil Rights Act because he felt that it was um, a federal, essentially, infringement upon states' rights. Now, states' rights has been overlaid with racial issues for all of our history. And so just even saying that somebody defends states' rights tends to have a um, sort of assumption that that person is trying to cover um, their racial prejudices. Um, but there is also a distinction, and I do think that it's important to realize that in some ways, um, John McCain did follow Barry Goldwater in that understanding that the state should take primacy over um, the federal government. So that while the federal government is important in certain areas or certain aspects of our, um, you know, governing, meaning international affairs and an international economy and the overall kind of general welfare of the country, um, many conservatives, John McCain included, but Barry Goldwater particularly, really did lead this, this understanding that the states had become too subservient to the federal government um, in the 1960s and that it was time for the states to start reasserting their power. And some of that traditional conservatism is what also pushed forward Ronald Reagan and much of his policy legacy. Okay. Now, the sad, a sad fact is the reason that we're doing this introspective on John McCain is that he's in failing health. And we wish his family the best of luck. We hope, he, we hope that he can recover. But looking back, if John McCain were to pass tomorrow, how do you think he would be remembered? I think... He is going to be remembered very favorably, um, certainly for as long as um, those who knew him can remember him. And what I mean by that is that John McCain was and is a very important individual in our country's um, sort of political jousting, as I sort of made mention. He is somebody for the last two decades has been able to command national attention to issues um, that have bucked his party at times, that have gone along with his party at times. But in just sort of being on the national stage, he has changed a lot of politicians' um, perspectives. I mean, many of the things that people don't remember was that in 2004, John Kerry um, actually looked at asking John McCain to be his vice presidential running mate um, before John Kerry settled on John Edwards. So there is this sense that McCain has been incredibly important. Unfortunately, the reality of history is that people who lose presidential campaigns are typically not remembered as much as those who win. Um, and so because he did lose, it's not um, unusual or unlikely that, you know, 50 or 100 years from now, his star will not shine as bright and he will not be remembered by historians in the way that he is at the moment. Okay. Uh, well, that's all I have. Is there anything, anything last you'd like to say, anything you think people need to know about Senator John McCain? Well, I mean, I think what's important to also understand about Senator McCain is he really is 
something of a a good government fighter. I mean, he is somebody who um, part of the reason why he put forward, you know, the McCain-Feingold bill, which became the bipartisan campaign finance reform act in 2002. The reason why he's campaigned against earmarks um, is because to him, those aspects of the bill, whether it was soft money in the old finance system, um, which helped to fund the political parties, or whether it's the earmarks that were in um, previous iterations of congressional legislating, um, really represent to him not public service. He really wants um, elected officials to be thinking about public service at a larger level um, than sort of the self-interested constituent preference level. Okay. All right. Professor Dr. Laura, <laughs> Laura Brown from George Washington University. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. Sure. No problem. Happy to help out. Yes. You're listening to the morning briefing. We shall return right after this. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.